Hi, and welcome to another edition of Religion Unplugged. Uh, my name is Ryan Anderson. I'm the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and I'm guest hosting a series of three uh, episodes of the podcast on the Equality Act. Uh, the first one was with Mary Hassan, a colleague of mine at EPPC, looking at some of the legal aspects of the Equality Act. Uh, the second edition was with uh, Professor Margaret McCarthy from the JP2 uh, Institute on Family Studies, and she was looking at some of the theological aspects. And then today we're joined by Carlo Lancelotti. Um, now, he's a professor at the College of Staten Island, the City University of New York, a professor of mathematics and of physics. Uh, but his expertise is on a uh, Italian philosopher. I shouldn't say his expertise. One of his additional expertise um, is an Italian philosopher uh, named Del Noce. Uh, and what's uh, important here is that this is a uh, Italian writer who only recently was translated uh, into English um, because of what Professor Lancelotti uh, did. He was the translator of two books, collection of essays of De Noche's, Um, And he really analyzes kind of, you know, what went wrong with modernity. In fact, one of the collection of essays is titled The Crisis of Modernity. Um, and so we're joined today with uh, Professor Lancelotti to talk about some of the deeper philosophical, metaphysical uh, aspects um, of the Equality Act, and not so much the Equality Act as a you know discrete piece of legislation, but what it embodies, kind of what um, uh, this aspect of legislation, this you know concrete legislative proposal, how it's the culmination of uh, some long-running currents uh, in Western culture in Western thought, uh, and looking at some of those theological uh, and metaphysical um, uh, aspects of the debate. Uh, just by way of background, uh, Professor Lancelotti uh, earned his uh, undergraduate degree at the University of Milan. Uh, he himself is Italian. He then came to the United States, earned his master's degree and his PhD um, at UVA, uh, University of Virginia. So um, thank you, Professor Lancelotti, for, for, for joining us. It's a, a privilege um, to have you uh, on the podcast. Uh, and let me just ask you first, I mean, tell listeners a little bit more about Del Noche. Um, you know, I think for many people, they're not going to be familiar um, with who he is or, you know, with some of his writings. You know, I've only gotten to know him because of your translations of him. And, you know, that, that's all, I guess, within the past five years or so. Um, just tell, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, who he was, you know, what his kind of, you know, big insights are. Um, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, I mean, De Noce was a political thinker and a philosopher. And um, if, if we want to locate him historically, he came of age in the 30s. And he was influenced by the previous generation of especially French Catholic thinkers like you know Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson. And uh, he tried to develop their ideas. And uh, most of his uh, work took place in the second half of the century of the 20th century. He died in 1989. And I mean, I, I think that he really was in some sense the heir of the French school, the French Catholic school of philosophy, uh, except that he wrote in Italian and Italian is not translated <laughs> as much as French and German for, for a number of historical reasons. Uh, but uh, I mean, uh, I have been familiar with him since my high school years, and I felt that he deserved to be translated because he's a very original, very profound thinker. And frankly, of that generation, the generation that came of age after World War II and tried to understand the sexual revolution, you know, the, the affluent society, 
he stands out. I mean, I, 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 I really, I mean, it's hard to make, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that as a Catholic political philosopher, he's certainly the most important Italian one of the second half of the 20th century, but I think he holds his own in general as a very outstanding Catholic political thinker, um, especially because he was very interested in understanding modernity. You know, I mean, the, 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 sometimes there is a, what I call the medievalist temptation, meaning that sometimes uh, Catholic thinkers just think that in a sense of just to continue a tradition uh, of systematic, the Summa, you know, and, and, and I mean, he was a Thomist himself. He was a, he was a friend of Jason. He was himself a Thomist, but he really thought that Catholic thought had to engage and criticize and understand modernity. For mm. example, he was a great uh, expert of Marx. You know, I mean, uh, there was a famous uh, Marxist philosopher in, Ita in Italy named Della Volpe who asked him to be his assistant because even the Marxists recognized that Del Noce, even if he was Catholic, was an outstanding connoisseur of the works of Marx. You know? mm. So he was that kind of guy. He was very interested in politics and culture and a lot of his works are about uh, contemporary culture. And so I think that's what makes him kind of unique and interesting. That's perfect. And, and I mean, one of the things that um, I know you've said before is that, you know, he was wanted to look at, um, you know, thinking through how we got to where we are today, not just as a sociological matter, but as a philosophical matter. Um, and, and therefore taking Marx seriously, not just as kind of like a political revolutionary, but as a philosopher. Um, and, so, and so I wonder, you know, what would Del Noche think um, about our current, current cultural moment? with respect to sexuality, right? I mean, so the Equality Act is obviously, I'll remind listeners, you know, it's a, it's a piece of legislation that would take the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, which had banned discrimination on the basis of, um, of race and then on sex and, uh, you know, a couple other characteristics. And it would add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. It would then expand the number of institutions that would be uh, regulated under uh, the Civil Rights Act. And then it would eliminate um, protections under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from the Equality Act, right? So it's a pretty sweeping piece of legislation. Uh, it's also a pretty ideological uh, piece of legislation because, you know, those terms, sexual orientation and gender identity are ideologically loaded terms. Right. What would he think just, you know, um, the rise of the concepts of sexual orientation and, and gender identity? What would he think, you know, about the cultural moment uh, that we're in with respect to the sexual revolution and now 50 years after the sexual revolution. Yeah, I mean, as you correctly pointed out, the Noche thought that this phenomena cannot be explained just sociologically. I mean, uh, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, it was kind of popular to explain the sexual revolution that was beginning at the time in sociological terms. You know, people, are, there is technology, there is uh, affluence, there is uh, economic well-being, and so certain um, traditional moral standards that were associated with the more rural or uh, agricultural or uh, whatever primitive society now fall by the wayside. You know, it was, that's what, that's what, the, what I would call a sociological explanation of the sexual revolution or the invention of the pill, you know, the fact that women work. And so you could try to, I mean, these are important factors. Nobody would deny that they that material sociological factor matter. But when things have this kind of inexorability, you know, when things move 
further and further in this kind of apparently irresistible <laughs> way, and they, uh, they, 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 they achieve more and more extreme positions, uh, I think Del Nocio would say that there is a philosophical necessity, meaning that there is some metaphysical, philosophical presupposition which is playing out, right? Mm. And so it's important to understand what is this, this metaphysical, philosophical background which by necessity leads to more and more extreme positions. And certainly he uh, thought that uh, it was already very visible in the 60s. I mean, essentially the Noche thinks that the turning point in Western culture kind of came after World War II, after 1955, 1960, as a response also to uh, the disasters, the tragedies of the first part of the 20th century, right? Because, you know, there was communists, there was Nazis, fascism, and in opposition to this totalitarian movement, a new culture rose in the West, which he calls the West. The Nazi likes to make an opposition between Europe and the West. The West was this new culture that came together in the 50s, the late 50s, the early 60s, which answered communists by rediscovering essentially the, the enlightenment, the enlightenment, like the French enlightenment, in, in the sense of a culture that values science, technology, mm. uh, individual freedom, you know, uh, and, 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 but, but this thing, uh, this new culture, this new Western culture must be understood in order to understand the sexual revolution. Okay. I mean, at, at the basic level, what's involved in, in the West that as it came to be after World War II is a scientific naturalistic worldview that eliminates teleology. You know, teleology means finality that eliminates symbols, you know, that, you know, that marriage does not have a symbolic value. Sexuality does not have a symbolic or religious significance. Sex is just a biological phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Uh, sexuality is a natural phenomenon. Some people have some orientations, other people have other orientations. The, the psychologists can study them. The, the sexologists can study them. Uh, in that time, 55 to 65 was the golden age of the human sciences, you know, of psychology, sexology, anthropology. And essentially, uh, from a scientific perspective, from a perspective that looks at science as the only true form of knowledge, true form of rationality, uh, kind of traditional morality doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, the, 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 the kind of vision of sexuality that relates sexuality to, for instance, the family, having children, even having children, you know, even having children is not necessarily tied to sexuality from this perspective. So the first thing that he emphasizes is this scientific, also, you can say positivistic turn. The culture took a scientific positivistic term. The other thing that happened at the same time in the early 60s that is still playing out today, in my opinion, that there was a rediscovery of Marxism. Again, as, a, as an answer to fascism, as an answer to Nazism, uh, many Western intellectuals, especially in France and Italy, but also in American academia, especially in sociology, in, in certain fields of academic, academic life in the United States, there was a discovery of Marxism mm -hmm. as a social science. Right, because um, the West, this West, did not rediscover Marxism as a revolutionary. Uh, rediscover Marxism as a as a as a critique, as mm -hmm. as, a, as a as a critique of uh, of social structures, 
explained in a way by material factors, right? That, you know, certain, the family, uh, the, the, the religion, uh, education, they don't have a value in themselves. They don't refer to any transcendent, uh, transcendent uh, realities, but they are just expression of social material forces and they can be deconstructed and criticized, right? This, this, this is a trend which is still playing out today. We started at that time, right? And so there was this merge. There was a merge of this new enlightenment scientist naturalist with the social, the Marxist interpretation of society, the Marxist critical spirit. Mm. Uh, interestingly, uh, at the same time, there was a huge uh, phase of economic expansion, right? You know, the, 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 the there was a widespread economic well-being, you know, the suburbs, the cars, and, 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 and it was clear, it became clear at that time that Marx's prophecy about capitalism self-destructing was not going to come true because it seemed clear that actually capitalism was succeeding in some sense to eliminate poverty. And so the revolution, the proletarian revolution was not going to happen. So this kind of Marxist thinkers had to reformulate Marxism mm -hmm. without, no longer in economic terms, no longer with the proletariat as the agent of the revolution, because the proletariat was kind of becoming suburban middle class. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean whatever. And so they had to find new revolutionary agents, new revolutionary subjects. And this is the, the age of uh, uh, Marcuse, you know, that all the oppressed groups of Franz Fanon, the Africa, the, the dark peoples, or uh, William Wright, the sexually repressed groups, uh, or uh, there's all these thinkers that at that time found, changed the Marxist revolution from an economic understanding of the revolution to an individualistic, therapeutic understanding of the revolution as liberation of the individual from repression. Okay, this is the Noche's thing. Is, as I said, that, that, that the revolution goes from revolution against capitalism to revolution against repression, sexual repression, but not on. And um, so that was the big turn of the 60s. And uh, the interesting thing, though, and this is the, the rise in the sense of what is called the new left, Mm -hmm. roughly speaking, right? And uh, what is very interesting, though, is that this new kind of revolutionary Marxism that is no longer economic, is no longer around the proletariat, is perfectly compatible with capitalist technocracy. I mean, because it's so individualized. It's about the individual. Basically, you free the consumer. You know, you free this individual. The sexually liberated individual is a perfect consumer. <laughs> so the, yeah. the, there, is a, there is a complete... There is a complete harmony between this kind of new leftist critique of repression. It's not able to criticize capitalism. And it seems like those two um, you know, kind of big ideas you just mentioned, the turn to kind of like scientism and empiricism and positivism, and then the embrace of a cultural form of Marxism, that those things really go hand in hand. Um, that if you get rid of teleology, you get rid of finality, you get rid of um, an objective structure of goods and of ends, um, and so you, you you just have physics, you don't have metaphysics, then every um, structuring of ends, every structuring of goods um, could be critiqued as purely about power, 
right? It's not about nature. It's not about intrinsic goodness, intrinsic teleology. It's just about whoever had power historically. So the family isn't something that's natural and good. It's a you know power structure. Um, you know, religion isn't something that's natural and good and even supernatural and good, but it's a power structure. Um, and so it strikes me those things have a pretty um, kind of, there's some dynamism there that the new left is, you know, both it's, you know, the, the, the metaphysical part of um, uh, scientism and then the metaphysical part of cultural Marxism kind of yeah. play off of each other. And it strikes me that that, that leads us um, to some of the, uh, sector orientation and gender identity stuff, uh, because now the body might not even, you know, the body might just be in a, a, an oppressive structure of, of power. So, so how would Del, Del Noche, um, you know, analyze, you know, some of the um, uh, transgender uh, claims that are being made or some of the same sex marriage claims that are being made, you know, the gender identity, sexual orientation, even as, as concepts, H- how do those two things come together? The, the empiricism and the scientism, and then also the cultural uh, Marxism. Well, I mean, the cultural Marxist does the critic, the critique. So the, the cultural Marxism shows that what the traditional kind of moral doctrines or moral structures, they were just masks, covers, fake mm-hmm. consciousness that covered uh, power structures, as you just said. And, and then once you remove that, what's left is just the brute biological or psychological realities, right, at at the level of scientism. However, there is also what the Noche calls a religious aspect, not in the traditional sense of religion, but in the sense that when you take Marxism and you um, separate the materialistic aspect from the revolutionary aspect, right, because Marxism has these two aspects. It is the critical theory of historical materialism, a critique of uh, traditional structure, as we just described, and there is this hope, this uh, faith in the revolution. Right? There is this faith, and there is this faith that history is proceeding towards heaven on earth. Right? That history, by its own internal dynamic, is moving towards happiness on earth. Right? The second aspect is religious. Uh, and 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 the not just says that it, in this he agrees with um, Eric Vogelin. The second aspect as a Gnostic flavor, as a Gnostic nature. You know, Gnosticism was this ancient religion that believed that the soul was trapped inside the body, and that generally speaking, the world has been created by a a, a bad god, and that the good god has to be reached by destroying the creation. Right, the creation has to be destroyed because it's oppressive. The order of creation, biology, uh, the body, uh, you know, material reality is bad, right? And and so the, the, the Gnosticism, uh, this idea that there is this dualism of of um, the good god and the bad god, and 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 and, and it's a rebellion against being, not just a, the rebellion against order. The idea is that if you destroy the order out of the ruins, uh, the new world will emerge, right? Uh, this is also this is already Marxist idea, but this Marxism, I think the Nietzsche will say that this Marxist uh, kind of secularized Gnosticism, because not secularized, but this kind of Marxist secularized Gnosticism still lives in this post-Marxist liberation movement, mm. because also this post-Marxist liberation movement, uh, they tend to think uh, that uh, 
for example, uh, you can have can be a man trapped in a woman's body. That's a very Gnostic idea. I think uh, Robert George, I once remember he wrote an article on that. Um, and so there is this sense that order is oppressive and that there is this tension between the individual, the authenticity of the individual and the order, the order of biology, the order of society, the order of all kinds of order is intrinsically oppressive. And, and, and so you, you see where this is going. So in a sense, you, you get a situation in which uh, you always have to look for something else to dismantle. <laughs> you dismantle this, you dismantle that. Uh, and the problem is that then the new world never comes up, <laughs> never comes by. You know, the, Ultimately, uh, it never happens. And so this is why the Nazis said that ultimately the, the Western process, the process of the West is a process of disintegration. Mm. Integration means that it can dis- can disassemble can all of these things, but it really ultimately fails to build. Yeah. So 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 let me ask you um, um, a final question: How do we reintegrate the West? Right. If um, the last sentence you had just said there was that you know Denote's critique is that there's something um, that's disintegrating about modernity. Uh, what do we do now? Like you know, what what advice do you have for our listeners? in terms of, you know, where do we go from here? What do we do in response? Um, and not just like narrowly to the Equality Act, but I mean, just to the malaise of modernity. So, you know, borrow a phrase from Charles Taylor, who I think is, you know, thinking along similar lines as Denoche um, uh, in that series of lectures that publishes a short little book. Um, what would be your advice uh, to listeners, to families, to religious communities? Um, how do we reintegrate? Uh, the West and and our lives living in this condition of the West. I, I would say that certainly one must not just react, right? Because it's very easy to just react against these movements, these trends, uh, and and kind of hysterically trying to stop them. One has to understand that if if these movements, um, in a sense, are a rebellion against being and they affirm an incorrect idea of freedom, the incorrect. The affirming idea of freedom as liberation from order, liberation from being. One has to find ways in which to affirm that we are free by embracing reality, right? That freedom is found by embracing the order, that the order is meant to liberate us, not to oppress us. Right? Mm-hmm. So to understand that, you know, the family is not an oppressive structure, it's a liberating structure. So, and, 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 and to, aff- to affirm that. That beauty and justice and goodness, you know, the Platonic transcendence are necessary for, to be human, to be free. And now this means uh, that in education, for example, uh, we, might not, we must not be afraid of, uh, you know, not just trying to create a, build a fortress like be, 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 and, and just to preserve, but to show that traditional ideas have a way of really pointing the way to more freedom, not less freedom. I know this is a little general and vague, but we are talking at the philosophical level. But for example, I'm a little bit concerned sometimes there is a certain type of integralist mindset. I mean, I appreciate many aspects of integralism, but this, this idea that in some sense you have to restore order and authority as against freedom. There is no position between authority and freedom. I mean, this is something I just said, sorry, that Tel Noche says all the time. No, the, the father makes you free. If you, a child with a father is more free than a child without a father. That authority properly exercised 
a good authority, the authority of a good curriculum, right? To, to give good materials to our students, to give them a beautiful content in their education. I mean, all these things is what I mean by authority. It's liberating, right? It's not against freedom. I mean, that, that's a really good, good, good critique that, you know, the Christian is not against freedom. We're against faulty accounts of freedom. Exactly. And we're proposing a sound account of, you know, for, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Like, it, it, there, but there's an alternative vision of what freedom is uh, that the Christian's proposing. That's really helpful. Yes. What else would you advise? Well, I mean, I, I think that it's also, um, the other thing is that since freedom is found in relation, I think mm-hmm. there is obviously a communal, a communal dimension. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the it is necessary that to have places where uh, there is a reintegration, which are communal. I mean, I think this is the valid aspect of the Benedict option, you know, that you need places where order and beauty and, and goodness are lived together in communities. And so there is, again, this is the anti-Gnostic, uh, you know, possibility. You know, to, 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 so there is, a, there is a need of... There is need of communities. And another thing is, um, uh, you know, also to talk to people who are not necessarily uh, Christian, but who recognize that there is a problem. Right? Because, mm-hmm. for instance, there is many traditional old-style leftists who are concerned. That they are concerned that this kind of new left, uh, sexualized left, the not because the sexualized left, mm-hmm. Really does not defend the poor, does not defend the interests of the of the disadvantaged in society, and so they are open to understand. Uh, they are open to talk and ask uh, how is it possible for the left to to not to go in this direction? And, and I mean, it happened to me that it, to meet some kind of leftist who said, "I'm worried because I see that the left is sliding to some kind of nihilism." You know? mm-hmm. It's also possible to talk to certain types of liberals. I mean, I, I, I disagree with the idea that liberalism is a monolithic, a monolithic um, phenomenon, right? I mean, the, 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 the not just says there are different types of liberalism, and there is a liberalism which goes an ethical liberalism, which is anti-totalitarian. I mean, we didn't have an occasion to talk about it, but the notion is very. Uh, uh, Profound in understanding that this uh, culture, this kind of mix of scientists and cultural Marxists, has a totalitarian nature. It's a totalitarian nature because once you remove all kind of finality of teleology, and, and the only source of ethics is what he calls the direction of history. He calls it the, the ethics of the direction of history. I mean that you have to follow this logic of history. If you're standing in the way of history, you're bad. If you're helping history proceed towards fulfillment, you're good. Right? So, but the, this, this ethics of the direction of history is totalitarian because the, you know, it's one side or the other and, and, and there is no possibility of dialogue. Yeah. Whatever. But, but as I said, there is what you don't call ethical liberals. Ethical liberals are people that may not have a religious faith, but they recognize that ethics, there is a transcendent, absolute ethical values that are not just the values of the, the ethics of the direction of history. And we can talk to these people. You, know, there, there are, you can see right now, many people who are not particularly religious who are concerned or worried about this totalitarian drift coming out of this uh, 
uh, culture that we have described, and certainly we can talk to them. I mean, it's so yeah. that, that's such good advice to, to to remind people that we don't have to agree on everything to be able yeah. to talk to people and to be able to work together on the things where we do agree, and that you know the the kind of like hunker down bunker mentality of you know draw the circle smaller and smaller of you know who you know I associate with is is is, is misguided that we can have we we need both kind of um, you know schools of community and virtue kind of a benefit adoption thing and we need to be building bridges to people who aren't you know already members of those sorts of things it's important to understand that the dividing line between totalitarianism and anti-totalitarianism is not on some specific religious doctrines mm-hmm. it is on, on a certain understanding of what it means to be human to have a, you know to have a, either you, either you embrace this kind of ethics or the direction of history or you don't that's what divides the people we can talk to from the people that it's from the ideologues. Okay? Yeah. So the, that's the crucial division. So we're, we're, we're probably out of time. Um, but so, so in one minute, before we started recording, we had, we had mentioned, you know, when we were just chatting with each other that, you know, a thinker um, who's influenced both of our kind of thinking and our, and our lives, um, you know, Luigi Giussani, father uh, Giussani, could you just share with listeners just, you know, one minute of, where you would suggest they turn in his writing? Because you, you had mentioned to me that, you know, Del Noche is kind of the um, diagnostician who's diagnosing what's gone wrong. And then Jasani is kind of more of the um, the thinker proposing ways forward. Um, could you just give us a closing word on, you know, for, for listeners who are interested both in Del Noche's diagnosis of what went wrong, but also Jasani's kind of prognosis of what we need to do what would you suggest they they read? Where where would they start there? I mean, the the, the Tosani has written this trilogy of books called the Religious Sense, the Origin of the Christian Claim, and the, and why the Church. Tosani was an Italian priest, and it came up in our conversation because we were discussing who proposes a way forward. Tosani was a high school teacher, and it's very interesting that in nineteen in the late fifties found himself at the beginning of this trend because in Milan in this uh, secular high schools where he taught the students again already were living this phenomena that we discussed and so what he understood in a nutshell i think is that you cannot just reaffirm you know traditional wisdom in the abstract but you have to live it as an experience right and so so that he has this great emphasis on on christianity as something that you can experience as something that happens to you that you don't not a theory that you conceive as something you can experience in a communal setting. So you see, this is why uh, that kind of thing is part of the discussion because uh, it's the possibility of the reintegration. I think that Giussani was a very early Benedict option, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so he's a very interesting author and he has many other aspects. So those three books would be a good place to start. I'll close this out by saying the two books that you've translated of um, Del Noche are um, The Crisis of Modernity and then mm-hmm. The Age of Secularization. And you're at work on a third book. So just for listeners, you know, you can get those two books now and be on the lookout for a third book. And then the three books um, by Jasani um, that you mentioned were The Religious Sense at the Origin of the Christian Claim and Why the Church. Um, yes. And so with that, thank you, Th- Carlo. This was great. Um, you know, fascinating to me to get to listen to and get to uh, uh, um, chat with you about all of this and hopefully um, it'll be uh, fruitful for our, our listeners as well. Um, so thank you. 
Cause a pleasure. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was guest hosted by Ryan Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and it was edited and produced by Steve Gandy. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.